0: Welcome back to The Middle of Culture. I'm one of your hosts, Eden.
1: And I'm your other host, Peter.
0: Hey, Peter. So, uh, how you been? What you been up to the last couple of
1: weeks? Um, you know, uh, I've been working. Busy. And working. I'm trying to think what I've done. I've definitely listened to some music lately. Nothing... The, you know, I'm trying to think there there is a uh, Massachusetts area band who dropped a new album. Uh, the name of the band is Chained to the Bottom of the Ocean, which, you know, I uh, appreciate. I, based on their sound alone, I am going to say that the name of the band is an homage to the 2007 thou song we have previously briefly touched on thou um they did a soundtrack for a video game if i'm remembering correctly i think so but yeah we talked about them a little bit because you had actually brought them up and i was like oh yeah no i've been a thou fan for i think I jumped on the thou train back in their maybe 2013, 2014 release. Um, I can't remember if Heathen or Magus was the first one that I caught on. Uh Anyway, they have an older song called fucking chained to the bottom of the ocean. And I'm going to have to just go out on a limb and say, this is where these guys took the name from, because it is, it is doom, but it is very sludgy kind of nasty, really raw sort of sounding vocals, uh, with this real heavy doom stuff. So sure, I've been getting into them a little bit lately and, you know, a couple new, uh, albums for some reason, I think I was listening to a podcast, um, that was talking about, it's a metal podcast where they take an album and kind of listen to it and go through it. And they were, I was listening to the episode on the 1995 Album "Demanufacture" by Fear Factory, and so that led Ooh, me. That's a that's a classic right there. Down. Oh, it's a fantastic album, and and it got me you know back listening to some Fear Factory again, uh, and so that was a little fun, kind of r- diving back into uh, Fear Factory's stuff. And then honestly, still slowly working on the wheel of time, but not that much because I just have not had that much time this uh, these last couple of weeks.
0: That's fair. And those books so. are long. So, you know, it takes a long time to
1: get through one. <laughs> it's true. I did. I was, you know, before we started recording, I briefly mentioned that I'll be making a Relatively quick trip to Boise this coming weekend. Uh, My 18 year old uh, is running in the state track meet for the four by 200 meter relay because their team pulled off an amazing first place win uh, the other day. Coming from literally fourth place due to a, a, uh, their first guy thought that it was a false start. So he stopped running and nobody else did. So then they played catch up and they were able to win and take first place, which is super cool. So I figure I'll have six, six and a half, maybe even seven hours because it is not in Boise. It's in Meridian, which is the other side of Boise. But I may have up to seven hours in the car alone this Saturday. I figure that should at least at double speed get me halfway through a Wheel of Time book, right? Uh, I would hope so. I don't. They're long. (laughs) I don't really know. They're real long. You know, getting into Brandon Sanderson and his Stormlight archive has sort of rewired my brain when I think of long I look at the audible audiobook narration of these and a bunch of them are in the like high 20 to mid 30 hour range yeah. and that just doesn't even register to me as a long book anymore because um, the uh, rhythm of war the most recently released stormlight archive book I'm pretty sure it was somewhere between either 52 to maybe 54 hours long uh. so you know if it's less than 50, I'm just like, yeah, whatever. No big deal. <laughs> Brandon, concision, my guy. <laughs> no, no, no. This, it, it, I think this is, this is a complete assumption on my part. I think Brandon Sanderson's novellas and stuff is where he goes, okay, I'm going to exercise restraint. I'm going to try and be concise. This is where I'm going to get that out of my system. And then the Stormlight Archive is where he's like, screw it I'm going to just write whatever I want for as much as I want because they are all excessive I think the shortest of the four books is in the high 40s in terms of uh, aud- hours uh, the audible version how, so, many, how many pages yeah. roughly does a 40 hour book transfer to well so these all range in hardback from around 1000 to 1200 pages <laughs> yeah that's 12 nice. books when they did the leather bound special fancy version of the way of Kings, uh, because it would break the leather binding, it's in two volumes. Ugh. There's and no again, need. That's the shortest of the four books.
0: There's no need. There's no need for this. I respect,
1: I respect if people enjoy it. You know, I, I love the world that he's building so much. <laughs> It, it, for me, it's just such a neat world that he's building that I, I love having time to spend in it. So, well, But I totally understand fair. the it's too much thought. But, you know, like I say, that's about it for me. So you mentioned beforehand that you've been into a bunch of stuff because of your schedule. So what you've been up to?
0: I have been. I have a list of things. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight things I'm going to bring up.
1: Ooh, exciting. I've had a Let's busy
0: couple of weeks. Um, first off, since you started with music, I too will start with music. Um, so I was listening to a podcast
1: the other day and they were doing a rewatch of the movie arrival. Have you ever seen the movie arrival? I have not. I own it digitally, but have just never gotten around to watch it. And I really want to, it's incredible. We should watch it for this podcast. Let's do it.
0: Um, but in, in part of that, uh, movie, they use that, Max Richter song that gets used in like every single movie, and it's used in The Last of Us, and like I can't think of the name of it right now. Something on like In the Nature of Daylight or something like that. It's as soon as you hear it, dear listener. If you go look up famous Max Richter song Last of Us or Max Richter song Arrival, you'll hear it, and you'll be like, "Oh yes, I've heard this song in eight thousand things." And here's the thing: I don't know how familiar you are with Max Richter as a composer. I'm not. He's overused. Uh he's he's overused. Um not because not because I don't think he deserves it. He's I think a very, very good postmodern, post-classical or neoclassical style uh uh composer. Very, very emotive and very, very um it draws emotion out of you as a listener really, really well, which is why it hits really hard, which is why he They have him do the soundtrack for a show like The Leftovers or, again, this one song on The Nature of Daylight gets used in 10,000 things. And every time it gets used, it's for a tearjerker moment. And even if the other thing doesn't land, the music draws the emotion out of you because it's just that kind of song. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So I was thinking about Max Richter and I was like, you know, I know he's done more than this stuff that gets used in modeling TV and games. And like, again, song itself, not modeling. But in its usage has become, I associate that song with the feeling that is treacly or maudlin. But I knew he had to do other stuff, so I just was, like, clicking through his his Spotify page. And uh, so in 2012, Max Richter sat down and said, Do you know what I should do? I should recompose The Four Seasons by Antonio Vivaldi.
1: <laughs> okay, that's a, I mean, that's a move.
0: That's a flex. Um, that's a, that's, that's coming in with some big dick energy. If you will excuse my turn of phrase. The question is though, 100%. does he, does he earn it? Cause like, first off you're like, okay, recomposed. What does that mean? Basically, what he does is he takes the themes, the motifs, the melodies that you are—we are all familiar with from the Four Seasons, one of the most famous, you know, movements of music to ever be written. Personally, my favorite uh, example of Baroque music—I think the Four Seasons is a banger. I could listen to it literally anytime. Um Sure. And he's like. I mean, there's like,
1: a reason it is so class. It is such a. A seminal work.
0: It's incredible. It does all of the stuff I like about Baroque music and eschews all the stuff I don't like about Baroque music. It's wonderful. Um, But so he takes it and remixes it, essentially. He calls it recomposition because that's what you call a piece of classical music. But it is essentially what in popular music we would call a remix. And he takes a lot of the elements that you expect from the four seasons and puts them into new contexts while still maintaining the feel and the flow of the original piece. And I was, again, when I saw it, I was like, that's that's a a ballsy move, my guy. I don't know that you have earned this. And then I started listening to it. And honestly, he kind of earned it.
1: Wow, that's impressive.
0: It is. Here's the thing. It's, I'm not saying it's better than The Four Seasons. It's not better than Vivaldi's The Four Seasons. But is it a wonderful, complimentary way to think about The Four Seasons in new ways? I've never thought about The Four Seasons before. Yes, it is um you know i was i was listening to it like a ton this last couple of days and i was talking to my spouse about it yesterday and we were driving in the car and i was like i gotta play this for you i gotta play this for you i gotta play this for you and so i pulled out winter the fourth of the four the four pieces i started playing it for and i was like okay this is the original winter get it in your brain everyone knows this piece of music and you know it gets to the exciting part that everybody knows and then i'm like okay now we got to go listen to this Max Richter version and you got to tell me what he's doing here because what he's doing seems so simple, but it's changing the way that I am fundamentally feeling about this piece of music. And so what he does is he takes the, the part everyone knows of winter. It's a four, four. And he says, yo, what if we made this a 7-8 and I just dropped the last half beat from every one of these measures?
1: (laughs) All right.
0: Because it's that part where there's a fair amount of repetition at the end of each of the measures, and he's like, well, what if I just... Cut one of those repetitions out and suddenly it's seven eight instead of four four and it gives them piece of music an impetus and a rhythm and like a a forward motion that it does not have when it is in common time because it's what you expect music to be in and you know we, I, we both have listened to a lot of progressive rock and you know your wife is a classical music person we've both listened to a lot of classical music when you start playing with those uncommon time signatures it creates mm-hmm. motion and impetus because they're not what standard Western music works within. And just a little change like that fundamentally alters the way that you feel about the piece because it, I mean, it is going faster because an eighth of each measure is missing, but it feels so much more propulsive and so much more like. It, like it's got a motor underneath it in a way that it didn't used to have. And that's just one example of the sorts of things that he's doing in this piece, in this suite of music that is just wild.
1: That's fascinating.
0: If if you are a Four Seasons listener, if you've, everyone's a Four Seasons listener. Who are we kidding? It's one of the most famous pieces of music I've ever written. I would mm-hmm. really recommend just sitting down 45 minutes and just... Taking a listen to it and being like, what does he do here? How does he recontextualize things? How does he take famous lines and then add, you know, a few, a a couple extra measures at the end with a more postmodern like view towards the way that rhythm and resolution work in music or he takes this you know what would be a short melody and he really elongates it in ways that baroque music simply does not let a single note hang in that way but right you can if it's not really baroque music anymore and so he takes and makes this short melody like you know 30 seconds long instead of a 4 second little thing and and like pulls it over the top of the rest of the music. It's really astonishing to listen to. And the more, you know, the four seasons and the more you, and the fresher it is in your brain, the more astonishing it is to listen to and be like, I don't know how this works so well, but it actually really works.
1: I'll definitely have to check it out.
0: It's really cool. I'd really recommend it. Um, All right. Some other stuff I've been doing. Uh, I have been watching a couple of TV shows that I think are worth mentioning. Um, And one of them will lead into some of the games and other stuff I need to talk about. So I'll do that really quick. Um, So first off, I had a friend who introduced me to an old 80s TV show called Sledgehammer. Have you ever heard of that show? Oh, yeah, totally. I had never heard of it before. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's really funny. It's an extremely mm-hmm. funny TV show. It, it for those of you who have, maybe don't know it, unlike Peter, it's basically what if Dirty Harry was like funny instead of
1: not funny. Yeah, a goofball instead of a badass.
0: Yeah, I mean he he thinks he's a badass, but like the exactly the the situations in which Sledgehammer finds himself are absurd. Um, Unlike absurd played for laughs, unlike in Dirty Hair uh, and Dirty Harry, which is absurd played for uh, racism. (laughs) So. I mean, I have opinions on the Dirty Harry movies, and none of them are very positive. Uh, I I know our father has fondness for those movies, and I used to until I watched them as an adult. And I was like, "Yo, these are not just racist. These are virulently racist. But that's neither here nor there. So is Sledgehammer, but that's the joke is that he personally is a virulently racist. Um, and so that's the kind of show it is. It's like, what if Dirty Harry was doing all the dirty hairy things taken to 11 in a world that realizes that this is comedy and not and farce and not to be taken serious Um, so it's pretty funny um i also have been continuing i think i've mentioned it maybe but i have been continuing my watch of the show star wars rebels on disney plus um it's just a really good show if you want extremely digestible, extremely easy to watch, 20 minute episodes. You put them on while you sit down to eat your lunch because you work from home and you don't want to be looking at your spreadsheets or your word processor anymore. And it's just really compulsively watchable. It's just a very watchable show. Um, I'm like halfway through the third season and some really big swings were taken in the second season that were really, really exciting. Um, and so I have just been continuing my journey through through Star Wars that I never got around to watching when it was fresh. Um, and what nice. really what really motivated me to start back on Rebels was I played the entirety of Jedi Survivor in I think three
1: days. <laughs> okay, cool. The Game rules. That's, all, that's what I'll say. I'm about glad that. to hear it. I have not yet started it. We we bought it on the Xbox. Uh, I know that at least Gareth has started it. I don't know if Alex has. Uh, Gareth, though, I will say, is now uh, completely uh, consumed by Tears of the Kingdom. Yeah. So I don't know when he's going to get back to it. Yeah, we've talked about that, but
0: that's fair. No, that's I definitely
1: fair. want to. Uh, I definitely want to give uh, Jedi Survivor a try. And uh, the good news is Gareth did inform me that there's a nice little sort of recap, a what happened in the first game at the beginning. There is. So I don't have to go back and play that. Thank goodness. I don't know whose idea that was, whoever it was. They deserve some kind of medal because, hey, you know what? There are those of us who want to pay for and buy those games and we don't have time to replay them. So it's true. being considerate of us, I, I appreciate that. It's true. It's a, it's a short
0: recap. If you did not play the first game, it's probably enough to get you to hit the ground running. But especially if you have played the first game, which I know you did and I had, it mm-hmm. was more than enough to be like, oh yeah, I am I'm reminded of all of the stakes. I am reminded of the big, you know, big things that happened in that first game. And it hits the ground running really well. It's set about five years after the first game. Um, a lot of things have happened that were apparently in a book that I will never read that apparently the game just basically ignores too. So that's fine. perfect (laughs) the the beauty of transmedia is that the game can be like whatever they hired some author to write some book in between our games we'll just be like whatever it'll explain why Grease has a robot arm now guess what I don't care why Grease has a robotic arm now he just has a robot arm it's fine but apparently the book explains why Grease lost his arm I don't care all I know is Grease is back and it's greasy money baby Uh, a game ruled (laughs) it survivor survivor took everything i liked about fallen order and upped it and took all the stuff that i didn't really like about fallen order and was like yo what if that was either gone or if it's still here it works a lot better and i was like okay okay it was it was an improvement in literally every way from the first game
1: that is excellent news
0: it's it's, it was really good. I know that Tears of the Kingdom is going to be on every publication's best of the year. Like, that's going to be the game of the year for everywhere. But it's a shame, because Jedi Survivor is probably going to be my game of the year. I mean, we'll see how Final Fantasy 16 turns out. But, like, Jedi Survivor was extremely rewarding as an experience. The movement feels a lot more fluid and a lot more solid. It doesn't feel like... Most of the time, it felt pretty good in that first game, but occasionally it was just kind of janky. I felt like, especially with the wall running, occasionally I would miss it, and then I would be like, "Oh yeah. crap!" And I'd always then I'd have to reload and blah 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 blah. It the the movement feels like they've clicked it into place better this time,
1: which is you exciting. know what I I could only hope is that somebody from oh uh, gosh, what is it respawn mm-hmm. who made the Titanfall games could mm-hmm. have, could help them out with that because. Well, they and made this game I too. Have, oh, is it the same team?
0: Yeah, it's the Titanfall team that makes Jedi Sur- Jedi Fallen Order and Jedi Survivor. But
1: Oh, see, I didn't realize they'd made Jedi Fallen Order. It
0: didn't work as well in Jedi I, Fallen Order as it did in Titanfall 2.
1: I was going to say in Titanfall 2, it was the best I think I'd ever felt. Like I've never had game movement feel as as just good and kinetic as it feels in Titanfall 2. Well,
0: so, I I will say Survivor is a lot closer. Somewhere to Titanfall Good. two than it was to fall in order. It feels a lot Perfect. tighter. There are parts where you are legit off the ground for 30, 45 seconds because you are doing weird Jedi, uh, hyper competence stuff. And like also a nice thing about it, they don't take your abilities away, which is one of the things that almost always happens in a sequel like this is they're like, well, we'll take you back to base one and, to, you know, first base. And then you got to go back and get all of these things that you lost. No, I got my Jedi double double jump from the very first part of the game. I'm a Jedi. Of course, I can double As jump. That should be. That it's makes fine. Sense. Of course, I can do all three of the lightsaber stances that I unlocked in the first game. It's fine. I'll give you two more in this game. And they're both better than the ones in the first game.
1: There you go. I mean, that just makes sense.
0: This one gives you, this one gives you lightsaber and gun.
1: I like it. I like. It. I'm looking forward to playing it.
0: How can you lose? Also, it gives you. Also, it gives you two handed lightsaber. It gives you sveihander style lightsaber, and they make it seem like it's heavy. Why is the lightsaber heavy? I don't know, but he's sure swinging it. <laughs> he's sure swinging it like it weighs forty five pounds, and they rules.
1: That's awesome. Anyway, I, I
0: really liked it. I fell in love with it. I liked the first one a lot. I think we've talked about it. But this one was <laughs> better in every respect. I felt like the the story was simultaneously smaller but more important than the first game. And there is a there is a series of set pieces on a certain planet at about midway, maybe 60% of the way through the game that is astonishing and one of the coolest set pieces I've ever played in a video game. And I don't okay. want to tell you anymore uh, cause it would spoil it. But if, and when you play that game, we need to have a spoiler chat about it here because that, that sequence, um, at the end of a big temple sequence, that's all I'll say is like,
1: okay, yo, it's really good. Well, I will definitely be playing it. I'll just need to, uh, kick some butt and get people off of the uh, xbox so that i can have a shot at it but uh well luckily
0: sounds... luckily tears of the kingdom's on the switch so that's one less person you got to kick off
1: correct i'm only gonna have to fight for time from alex so
0: well after i finished jedi survivor i was like well i need to play more video games and so i played three other video games not to Holy their cow. not
1: All to right.
0: completion but i played a, a fair amount of them and worth mentioning um sure. i I think I mentioned a few months ago that I was playing a little bit of Atelier Riza, which is one of the Atelier games. I've mentioned them before. They're like a series of JRPGs that entail you being like a young woman running a an alchemy workshop. Um, mm-hmm. And Riza didn't really click with me but i think it would now after i've played more of this other one because i've been playing a fair amount of sophie which is from the trilogy before the rise of trilogy they basically usually come out in trilogy sets this company has made like 20 of these suckers in the last 20 years like these Jeez. there are a lot of atelier most many of them aren't even available in english but like they have not wasted time making atelier games and it's because they're fairly simple. Like tell you, Sophie, I go to places, I fight monsters if I need to, or I collect stuff, and then I go back to my, uh, my workshop, and I brew potions and shit. Like, I throw things in my alchemy cal- cauldron, I, like, try to make them fit on the board so I can get more bonuses, and that's, like, the whole game. Like, it is the ultimate in-podcast game, because, like, most of the time nice. I don't need to be paying any attention to any... There's not really any story. I am just Sophie and her friends running around... Fighting monsters, collecting ingredients, making potions, selling them to the townspeople, so that I can make more money. Like that's the game. Very cool. But I'm really enjoying it. Um, I also uh, I, I have mentioned on the podcast a couple of times that I that you know I've played a, a fair amount of Genshin Impact, um, which is like what if Breath of the Wild was anime girls, um, which. Yeah, let's. Uh, what if Breath of the Wild was free, had extremely predatory gotcha mechanics and anime girls? Okay, that's <laughs> Genshin Impact. Um, <laughs> I, again, I like that game a lot, but I'd be the first one to say that the gotcha mechanics in that game are extremely predatory and should be illegal. Because um, it would be mm. way too easy to bilk people for money. And they have. They've made billions of dollars on that game. Like, b- no question billions of dollars so like people are getting taken advantage of by a very clear gambling system built into that game so that's indefensible however i I do still play the game i just don't engage with that stuff but that company put out their newest game in the last couple of weeks called honkai star rail which is a the way i would describe it is baby's first turn-based rpg because okay Because it's like, you know, I've played a fair amount of those Persona games, we've talked about them here, you're running around, you're running into monsters, it starts a a uh, turn-based combat where you are trying to find elemental weaknesses and use your elemental attacks that are strong against the weaknesses of enemies and trying to buff your weaknesses in the face of attacks from enemies, that sort of stuff. This is like that, but a lot simpler than Persona is. Because, you know, in Persona, you've got eight spells on each one of your characters and each one of your personas, this game has two buttons. It's basic attack and special attack. And then you also have an ultimate, but that's like it. And so it's a lot about team composition because again, this is a game where you're supposed to collect a lot of people that have different elemental abilities, you know, so you'll see when you're going into a battle, okay, this battle, I need to have some sort of electricity. I need to have wind. I need to have ice and I need to have, you know, physical, like just fighting because that's, those are the recommended elements. So I got to look through my roster, see who I have and then go into the battle with them. Um, and I'm really enjoying it. I think that the story is really well done. Um, I really like a lot of the characters in the game and the, the way in which the combat is not dumbed down, but like simplified enough to not make me work really hard like i don't there's never a point where i'm sitting there for a minute thinking i'm not sure what i should do like it is five to ten seconds deciding what should my course of action be because i can't change i can't do things like change turn order i can't do things like you know uh, there's a lot of the stuff that would be in a more complex turn based game that just is not there so a lot of it is just like okay i gotta plan ahead a little bit but i'm not doing like I'm not playing like big brain mastermind where I'm thinking 30 moves ahead. I'm only thinking three or four moves ahead and it's, it's fairly simple, but still challenging enough and rewarding enough that I'm having a good time with it. And again, it is free with extremely predatory gotcha mechanics. So if you (laughs) are not a person who is um, prone to gambling then I think it's a great game because I have not spent a single penny on it and I've had a great time and I'm keeping playing it for now and I'll never give them a penny, but it's fine. It's a fun game. If however, you are the kind of person who has to deal, who has trouble with gambling, do not ever play a Hoyo verse game. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) Cause you'll spend (laughs) 10, you'll spend $10,000 to get the perfect team with the best meta and why? Why did you do that? Why did you spend $10,000 on a video game? Don't do that. Yeah, no. And then the last thing I will mention, I know we've been going for almost a half an hour at this point, but I had a lot of things I've done. Um, I That's am great. almost done. I'm almost done with the game Demon X Machina, um, which is a mech game because so, FromSoft, people who make your Elden's Ring and your, um, your Dark's Soul, um, they... They've got a new game coming out. Armored Core 6 fires a Rubicon. They made the Armored Core games back in the early 2000s. Big mechs, big fights, incredible set pieces. They look great. I've never played one, but they look incredible. And I'm like, maybe I should try Armored Core 6. And so I was talking to some friends in a Discord, and I was like, I am interested in the Armored Core series. And they were like, well... Do you want to pirate things or do you already own this when they gave it away in the epic game store for free? And I was like, oh, Demon X Machina is, hey, you guys aren't putting out armored soul armored core anymore, so we're just gonna make an armored core. And they're like, Yes, that's exactly okay. what it is. Um, so in terms of the gameplay, apparently Demon X Machina is just like playing an armored core game. And I have been having a great time. Building a weird big mech and figuring out which weapons to put on it and how how which legs do I need to put on because is it more important that they're they've got better armor is it more important that I can scuttle along the ground faster and it's uh, the story sucks it's dumb it's real it's really poorly told but the mech on mech action is extremely fast and extremely fun Um, and it's not that long and I got it for free so. I'm going to finish it. I've got like, I think, four or five missions left to finish the game, so I'll probably finish it tonight or tomorrow, and uh, I'm happy with the time I've spent with it. Cool. All right, but speaking of things we should know whether or not we were happy with the time we spent with them, it is time (laughs) to talk about (laughs) Gamera 3, Revenge (laughs) of Iris. We are wrapping up our coverage of the Gamera Trilogy from the 1990s with the... End. It's the end. It's all over. So before we go into the uh, the summary, what did you think about this one, Peter?
1: Well, so I texted you, and a little inside baseball. We we're recording a few days later than usual because, again, life was just kind of crazy for me the last few days. And so I had texted Eden and told them uh, I'm looking forward to talking about this. I have feelings, and so I'm just going to start with my feelings. Please. And I think the best feeling, the best way I can express those feelings is to say it was profound disappointment. Okay. Yeah. Go on. I did not enjoy this one. Okay. I did not think that it was bad. Uh, it's not something where I was, you know, like, oh my gosh, what a terrible movie. But it felt very different. Yes. To me. And I'm really interested to hear your opinions on this, but the the I think the key thing for me is the first two movies felt like big kaiju, you know, just let's go kind of mm-hmm. movies with some other things peppered in, you know, some some what are we doing to the planet, and you know, like you you had talked about, you know, Gamera's kind of connection with humanity and this sort of thing, but this one to me felt like this is much more of a psychological movie that happens to involve big monsters.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with that analysis of it.
1: And I was coming into this off the high that was Gamma 2 where it's like, "Hell yeah, big monsters beating each other up." And this one, while it still has some of that, that part felt way less important or central to the movie. Sure. Like again, it felt like even in the big final battle between Iris and Gamera, it felt like what was happening between the two monsters was the sideshow and what was happening with the human characters and, you know, this one girl and and, and her link to Iris and, and you know, then, then Asagi and kind of her previous link to Gamera and everything, it felt like, This was much more the focus of the movie, and I'm not saying that's bad, but it's not what I was coming into it for. Yeah.
0: The feel of this one is very
1: different than the first two. Oh, huge, hugely different. And I'm glad to hear you say that because, uh, I, again, the neophyte that I am when it comes to these types of movies, I thought – maybe it was just the mood I was in the night I watched it or maybe it was this or maybe it was that, but it did, it felt so incredibly different. And again, not bad. I want to make it clear. I did not feel that this was like a lesser movie than the first and second. I don't know if I, I feel like I could really opine on that, but what I definitely felt like was that for me, what I had Enjoyed so much about especially the second, but also the first. Like they just felt fun. This movie did not feel fun to me.
0: No, this one does not have the. The, the attitude and the sentiment of this film are very different than the other two. And the way that yeah. I felt about it, I think I mentioned last episode that when I first watched this trilogy a few years ago, I remember thinking Revenge of Iris was my very favorite. Um, and I don't know that that's not still true, but I will say that like this film, especially in comparison to the first two, especially in comparison to Advent of Legion, is a land of contrasts. Because it simultaneously feels like some of the parts are, like, some of the parts are even more yo than the last one was. But often I'm like sad that in a way that I'm not when I'm watching the other ones. And so and you know uh, sometimes this even comes down to like the um, special effects. Sometimes the special effects look better than they've looked in any of these movies. And sometimes you're like, yo, that CG was pretty dodgy, guys. That was not not a good one. That was not a good one. And so it feels like this movie encompasses both the highest highs and the lowest lows that this series has to offer. Um, And I think a lot of that comes down to, like you said, the scope and the feel are just very different here. Because it is not th- this one. It feels far more like a like a psychological, like you said, like a psychological film, like a thing about interiority and about and and about how we process trauma, rather than let's just watch the monsters destroy some shit. For sure. And and I think that it works. I think it really works. I still, like I said, I still think it's probably my favorite of the three. But I can see how you would come out of it saying, I don't know that this one worked for me, um, because it just
1: feels. It just feels different. It just feels very different. It does. And, and that's where this out of all of the three of these is the one I would be most interested in coming back and watching again in six to 12 months time. Yeah. Because I rolled into this with this vibe from the first two movies. And, you know, there was definitely a progression between one and two. But it felt like two was more kind of like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It was more a refinement of the formula of one, Mm -hmm. an improvement upon it. It was taking what we got we had in one and it was making it just a little bit more and a little bit better and a little tighter and and all this stuff. Whereas this one felt like, I mean, it just kind of comes out of left field. Yeah. And I would be really curious to see my – Personal feelings about this movie, with distance between those first two, and now kind of understanding. Oh, this is a very, very different movie. Yeah. Coming in and watching it and seeing how do I feel about it. That would be very interesting.
0: But before we go any further, quick recap for those of you who maybe haven't seen these movies. However, as we said last time and the time before, they're all on Amazon. Just go watch them. They're great.
1: They are. Um, they are. They're right there. So
0: this one takes place three years after the other ones. Which again, this movie came out 3 years after that too. And I think that that says something too whereas the first two were made back to back within a year of each other. There are 3 years between those two and this one and I think that th- that adds to that feeling, that different tone to it. Um so 3 years have passed. Um Nagamine's back, the uh ornithologist from the first movie, um and is trying to figure out what's happening with the Gauss. Because they are now going all over the world. They are peering all over. And she is trying to figure that out. Um, also, uh, we meet uh, some weird, like, occultist people. Um, who are just being real weirdos. And we'll talk about them a little yeah. bit. But there's, like, a guy and a girl who are just real fucking weirdos. And they think that... <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> they think that Gamera is, like, an evil spirit or something. And they're just, like being little freaks and they're in the background of this whole movie um Gamera shows up some some of these gauss appear the film calls them hyper gauss because they have evolved um and so uh some of them show up in Shibuya Gamera shows up messes them up accidentally kills 20,000 people in the process that's all just 20,000 people and so needless to say the government is like okay we're done with this big turtle man we gotta kill him we gotta stop him Um, and while all of this is happening we're also getting the story of Ayana, who is a young girl whose parents were killed by Gamera accidentally in the Gauss fight in the first movie this is you know flashbacks to the first movie when Gamera Gamera is like thrown into a building by the Gauss running into him oops her parents were in there going after her cat Iris who wouldn't come out from under the bed now her parents are dead and she watched Gamera mm-hmm. destroy the entire building that her parents were in so needless to say girl holds a grudge
1: <laughs> yes she does
0: and so she has been moved out to the country now she's not in Shibuya anymore or I guess she was in Tokyo in the first movie but uh, she's not in Tokyo anymore she's out in the, villi- the country village with her you know like aunt and uncle or whatever and there's a small old village temple out there that's closed off she's bullied by some kids and like they get her to go in there because they're all scared of it and inside she finds a stone egg um and eventually she the the egg hatches she's the one who finds the creature inside and the creature basically imprints upon her um she names the creature iris after her cat um and she also finds a Magatama, one of those pendants that uh, Asagi had in the first two movies, shaped different, a little black and a little, little more menacing looking. But through that, uh-huh. ma- through that Magatama starts forging an emotional connection with Iris the way that Asagi had forged an emotional connection with Gamera. Iris starts to grow. It acts, well. It absorbs her into it. Um, but one of her classmates who is the, you know, the kid whose family is tasked with guarding the, the temple and this egg that was in the temple to make sure that it never arises, cuts her out of it, saves her. Iris goes sicko mode, kills half the village, eats them and grows into the adult form. Um, the military tries to attack it. Doesn't work. Flies off to Kyoto because Ayana has been taken to Kyoto by the weird, the weird freaky people who think the gamma is evil and on the way uh nagamine gets like tied into all this stuff because she's working with the government trying to figure out what's happening there's this new monster that has appeared iris is real weird looking like it's a real weird design i think ultimately i i think that the legion the mother legion design was better but this one works too in a really alien way Uh, but so I can, I can see that because Nagamine is tied into all this stuff. Asagi calls her and is like, yo, is this thing attached to somebody? Something's going on. I'm, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm in college now and I've been doing study abroad, trying to figure out how my connection with Gamera worked. So she comes back. They eventually find Ayana and Iris is attacking Kyoto, looking for Ayana. Gamera shows up. They have a big, in midair battle which like i say the cgi is pretty dodgy in the ed- the aerial battle but once they land we're right as rain when it comes to the f- the fights um but they land into the train station in kyoto um and the monsters run into each other they're fighting on the ground iris kicks gamma's butt you know even worse than the mother legion did in a lot of ways he like oh, yeah. impales him through the middle like you can see through him and just like leaves him there on the ground um and then iris goes and picks up ayana and shoves ayana into its heart um and and therefore like having that like that that connection that it was building from when it was a little baby also the weirdo freaks get killed by the train station falling apart and the weirdo freak dude is like oh boy i'm dying this is scary it's real weird <laughs> his character does not yeah. work for me i'll just say that the no, m- the weird lady the weird lady i get it this works the weird computer programmer guy who makes a video game about how mana works don't get him but no that's neither here nor there so Ayana gets sucked into Iris, realizes that her hatred and bitterness have created this monster, and is like, oh no, what have I done? And right as that happens, Gamera gets up, shoves his hand into Iris's chest, pulls her out, and saves her. Um, and so Iris gets mad impales gamma's other hand and starts sucking energy out of gamma oh because that's how that's how iris grows iris doesn't have a mouth uh it impales things with its tentacles and then sucks the juices out of it and that's how it grows and gets stronger so it impales gamma and starts sucking gamma powers out of him um and like creating fireballs with gamma's dna that it's sucking in And so Gamera does the most heavy metal thing that he has done in any of
1: these movies. (laughs) Yes, he does
0: fireballs, his own handoff absorbs the fireballs that Iris was making with its tentacles into a fiery fist of doom. And just like pile drives it into Iris's open chest wound that he ripped a kid out of earlier, which obviously that's, that's game over guys. That's game over. He punched him in the heart with a fire fist um and so iris is dead gamera sets ayana down um and nagamine and asagi are trying to revive her they don't seem to be doing anything gamera war- roars awakens ayana and then she looks up at him they like make eye contact and then he starts to shuffle away and she's like why why would he have saved me and then the movie ends with one of the bleakest possible endings i could have imagined they gave this movie as thousands of Gyaos start swarming the coast of japan ready to dive into kyoto and Gamora, missing a foot or missing his arm a huge hole in his chest just le- like leans back and roars to the sky and asagi's like he's gonna fight till it's over that's that's what he does and that's how the movie ends with like this almost nihilistic ending as Gamora roars in defiance as the city is in like flames and carnage around him and thousands so of Gauss and thousands of Gauss are about to descend upon him. And that's the movie. That is oh, the movie. And then it ends with the title Gamera colon 1999. The absolute guardian of the universe. And that's how the movie Uh ends. (laughs) It's a, yeah, it's a weird one. It's a really weird one. I think it really works, but it feels so different than the other two.
1: Yeah, it really does.
0: And like, I think the reason it works for me, even though I wish there'd been a little more gamma in it, Always always could use with more monsters in the movie. But I also understand there's a lot less of him in this one than in the other two. Also, he looks meaner than ever in this one. I think I said last time, he's going to get meaner looking. Oh, he's real mean yeah. looking in this one. Like Yeah, he is. His shell is like they did a lot of really interesting work in his in his like creature design. His shell, like the plates of it can move and ripple, which is really weird and a little disconcerting and uh his face just looks meaner and like his eyes are smaller and just like he's he's just more more vicious looking and that to be fair again in the in the fight in uh, shibuya he kills 20,000 people just like mm-hmm. trying to take out the gals so he's just doing his job but uh you can tell that like something has happened fundamentally. Like his connection with humanity is gone. And while he still is trying to protect them where he can, you know, there's this one little kid that's like, Oh, he saved me. He's like, well, he saved you and 20,000 other people died in that attack. So
1: lucky for you, little guy, not so lucky for the other people in this town. Uh, I mean, I wrote down at one point, I'm like, bodies are just flying. I mean, there's this scene in there where you do, you just see just hundreds of bodies just flying into the air with this fireball behind them i mean it was it wasn't holding any you know pulling any punches
0: he's he does not seem like the good guy in that fight even though like ontologically i think that you're supposed to understand he's the good guy in that fight she sure does not seem like it he does not seem like it in that fight even though gauss is there like and the the gauss f- the gauss suit looks way better than the first movie there's this scene where he mm-hmm. like knocks it out of the sky and its eyeball is
1: like hanging out of
0: its skull and it's like
1: oh, is, <laughs> it's pretty gruesome it's
0: pretty gross bro that's pretty gross um but yeah it's a it's a, this movie really does like i said feel like a land of contrasts in a lot of ways differently than the other ones where i feel like when it's working it's really really working but it the pacing is a lot slower. The movie feels Mm -hmm. a lot slower. It's only about 10 minutes longer, but it feels a lot more than 10 minutes longer.
1: Yeah, it does. And and that was, I mean, that was the first thing that I really noticed and that kind of jumped out at me was it it was taking, I mean, I mentioned this when we got to, to Gamera two, it felt much more immediate. We were like, yeah, it was, it was, we kind of hit the ground running. And with this, We've got the flashback and we have all the setup and a, a, not bad things, but it was a different enough feel that even from the beginning, I could tell we were in for something different. This was a different movie.
0: Well, it's just, it's a lot. It Again, it's still a huge monster movie where like literally 20,000 people die in one scene. But like the fact of the matter is it feels smaller and quieter in a lot of respects than the other films. Definitely, um, and I'm not. You know, I'm not sure how else to describe it than that. But it just the scope feels smaller in terms of the main story because we're so hyper focused on Ayana and how she feels like so much hatred for Gamera taking her family from her, and and that hatred becomes embodied in this other creature. That then does all of the same things, takes her second family from her, kills her entire uh, extended family except for her brother who somehow survived, but like everyone else gets got, and you know destroys so much of uh, of the town that she was living in, eats half of the village, and like it's it's almost like it's a movie about the effects of grief and the way that grief and not not processing your trauma will cause you to traumatize others and that is what this movie feels like it is about and that is not what either of the first two movies are about i could not <laughs> boil i can't boil gamma guardian of the universe down to a psychological treatise on how if you are if you experience trauma and do not work through your trauma in a productive way you will enact trauma on others Like I can't do that with guardian of the universe. That was just a big (laughs) turtle, man, a big turtle, man, kills some ugly birds. And so I think that's why it still works for me, even though I still think that there's a lot of it that feels kind of sloppy in comparison to the other two.
1: Yeah. Like I say, it was just different enough and I don't, I didn't anticipate that. Yeah. So I came into it going Cool. Number three, let's go. And it just, it, it was very, it's just a very like, different tone. Not what all. Yeah, it really is. It's a it really very is.
0: different tone. Uh, some other things that are worth mentioning. Uh, as I said in the second movie, our detective friend is back in this third movie. Um, oh, this poor chap, but he gets it together in the end.
1: Yeah, he kind of does,
0: you know? So the situation with him is he is now a bum. He, after his experience with, uh, Gamera, or with the Gauss and the Gamera in the first movie, and with the Legion creature in the second movie, he is now a homeless person living on the streets of Tokyo. And uh, Nagamine sees him and is like, come on, like, let's talk. And is able to get him to realize what has happened and how he can still try to help people. And so he basically teams up with Nagamine again um, and is becomes like her right-hand person as she's trying to figure out what's going on. And I thought that was a really nice kind of redemption arc for him. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I, I just have to say, what happened between 1995 and 1999? How did he get hot? <laughs> he was ugly in the first two movies, and suddenly he like went gray and let his hair grow out to cover his bald spots a little better and got a bit more tan. And suddenly I was like, why is this Berkter Osako kind of hot? What the fuck? (laughs) But he is, he is. I hate to say it folks. He's kind of hot. Um, so that's weird. Um, I love that Nagamine was able to come back, um, and tie in with that first movie. I really wish they had gotten any of the people from the second movie back too. I think it would have been great to get the scientists from the second movie and Nagamine on screen at the same time. I don't know why we couldn't do that, but whatever. It was fun to have Asagi come back. Also, I don't think I've mentioned this on either of the previous two episodes. Do you know who Asagi's dad is? Did you look this up at all? I did not. That's Steven Seagal's kid. No. Yeah, Asagi is Steven Seagal's kid from when he was living in Japan in the 80s.
1: Oh my gosh, that's insane.
0: Right? It's wild. He was married to a aikido master named miyako fujitani and he and she got pregnant back in the late 70s and that's where ayaku fujitani comes from she is steven seagal's kid and she was in the gamera movies and made a couple other films and has since become a writer and she is a writer now wow but yes steven seagal's daughter that's weird (laughs) but once you but once you say it you're like
1: Oh you, I, you can, I can see, see it.
0: it. I can see it. I can sh- see it. The got the shape. i I'm
1: like Yep.
0: She's got Steven Skull's face shape.
1: Yep. That's funny. It's real weird.
0: Yeah, anyway, other any other thoughts on this film? Before we I I will say, I really enjoyed it, but the second it ended with that like real downer of an ending. I will not lie, dear listener. I immediately took that Blu-ray out of my Blu-ray player and put 2006's Gamera the Brave into my DVD player and watched it in its entirety immediately following (laughs) this one because I was like, do you know what I need now? Because this was great. I really enjoyed it, but it was very bummer of an ending. I need a Gamera movie that doesn't end as a bummer. So I'm going to watch Gamera the Brave literally right now. And I did, and it was great. (laughs) That movie also still rules not in the continuity with this movie but it does end like that movie starts this is not a this is not a spoiler for what happens in that movie because this is literally the first two minutes of that movie the first two minutes of that movie is set in the 70s Gamera is being attacked by a huge thing of Gauss he does the uh chest open attack and it kills all the Gauss but it also kills him and then the movie is set oh. in the present day as Gamora reincarnates and starts as a little baby box turtle in a little guy's hand. And then he grows up because he's got to protect the people. <laughs>
1: I might have to watch this one too. <laughs> I,
0: I would recommend it. I think Gamora the Brave. Uh, Gamera the... I still think this m- trilogy is probably better, but Gamora the Brave is one of my very favorite kaiju movies ever. It is so more it's so much more guileless and like clearly designed to be like a kids feel good version of gamma like the Showa era gamera had been instead of this darker, more serious version of gamera. And honestly it really works in uh, a, a as a follow up to how dark this one ended.
1: Hmm. Like I say, I thought this was interesting. It wasn't what I was coming in for. It was a bit of a kind of a hard turn. Yeah. Uh, which I do, I think that with a little bit of time and a little distance, I would be really interested to see my thoughts in going back and watching it again. So uh, I might have to do that, but know, really, I think a, a number of months, you know, six, 12 months down the road, really give myself some distance and then see, uh, see how I approach it. See how it, yeah, how it sort of strikes me.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that that would be an interesting thing to, to revisit in a few months as well. Um, but yeah. like I say, if, if you were into Gamera and you're like, I want, I want more Gamera. Hey, there's the goofy Showa era movies. They're great. They were almost all of them on MST3K back in the 90s. So that's the type of movie you're getting if you watch the 60s and 70s gamma movies. The <laughs> kinds of things that you would watch Crow make jokes about. So just know that going in. They're not they're good, but they're not good. But if you want a good gamma movie to follow up these ones, go watch Gamera. The Brave came out in 2006. It's wonderful. It's just really incredibly good. Um, has some of the best, some of the best suit work because he's just a little guy. He's not grown up yet. He's just a little guy, and so he's just like a little. He's a little cuter. Like his face is a lot more round because he's just like a little guy. Huh. Um, it's really good, but uh, I think that's where we'll leave it. I think that I'm really glad that we took the time to watch these movies. I, I. I enjoyed it seems it like you as enjoyed well. them. And I'm, I did. I did. Definitely. That was the goal. I wanted to, you know, share these with you because I think that they're really incredible and really worthwhile and a good example of this genre that I love so much. And these are three really solid. And in the case of this third one, different from one another entrance in, in a, a series and in a genre that I'm quite a big fan of.
1: Sure. No, it was, it was a very interesting, uh, uh it, set of movies to watch and, and I'm glad we watched it. So,
0: well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And, uh, with no further ado, then I guess we'll wrap up now. If you have any, uh, questions or comments you'd like to share with us, you can always email us at feedback at the middle of culture.com. Um, go ahead and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us five stars because five stars makes, um, camera really happy. <laughs> and maybe he'll, maybe he won't kill 20,000 people if he's happy. I don't know. Maybe that's he saw he got up on the wrong side of the bed. He saw that we got two stars from somebody.
1: It's true. It's true.
0: All right. And so then until next time. <laughs> have have a great week.
1: Yep. Thanks everybody.